raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favourite things. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we're about to have a chat with a man who has, I think, one of the greatest names in uh, in media history, Timothy Dawson Langbean Ferguson. Good, good evening to you, Tim. Ah, oh, yeah, my parents piled in the middle the middle names, Simon. What yes. can you do? You got no power when you're a kid. What was going on there? I've never like Timothy, fine, Ferguson, fine, quite regular names, but I've never heard of another Dawson and another Langbean. Yeah, they're uh, they're hard to find. They're just my middle names of my grandfather's. Right. Oh well, we um, we, we have something in common there. My my grandfather's middle name was Adiel, which is a, a name I've not ever heard anywhere else. So, uh, sorry, my grandfather's right. name was Adiel. My my middle name is Adiel. So, uh, we are the bearers of our grandfather's odd names. Oh wow! And look at us. It- <laughs> Stood by us all our lives. A recipe for success. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, Dawson and Langbean, uh, are they from another country, uh, an odd sort of language? Well, the Dawson is D-O-R-C-E-N, which apparently is Swedish. Right. Um, although nobody can explain how I have Swedish blood and yet nobody mentioned it. Um uh, the other one, Langbein, is a German name meaning long bones. Typically, I guess the families, people with long bones, which is, so it's no surprise. I'm six foot three, my legs are lanky. Um, but my grandfather, uh, his, I think his grandfather during World War I had Langbein as his surname. But he took oh. his wife's name, Ferguson, because it was World War One, and Germans were on the nose. Yes. And, um, and so stuck with that. So all of my cousins, all of my uncles, all of those aunties, um, boys and girls have Langbein as a middle name. Right. Uh, well, there you go. Isn't that uh, – I love um, – have you done sort of much in the way of family tree history? No. A lady called me once when I was at – uh, at Channel 9, in fact, uh, called me her surname was Lang, and she said, we're related, and she'd done a big family tree, um, uh, but I never really followed it up. But she was the one who told me about the whole Langbean experience. Right. So Go- it's uh, – and so anybody called Long or Lang, uh, they're all derived from that German that German term. Yeah, effectively, I guess, meaning tall people. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, they've just got long bones. Interesting, I had a um, uh, an Albert Long was a teacher of mine in uh, secondary school, and I think he was probably the second or third shortest on staff. So, so <laughs> it's not often, it's, it's uh, not always uh, uh, handed down along the right uh, part of, you know, the right lineage, I guess. No, yeah, I think they... Uh it's not a reliable guy. <laughs> um, now, so Tim Ferguson, uh, Doug Anthony, All Stars. Um, yeah, it was such a, a massive part of your life, and still is uh, to a degree. There, uh, with the occasional tours that you do. But how did? I, I know. I know. I've asked you a million times, but I love the story. So, how did it all start? Oh, it all started with uh, Paul McDermott and Richard Feidler and I working on the street, being buskers. 
which I heartily recommend to anybody who wants to be a comedian. Do it on the street. The mm. venues are crammed with mediocrity at the moment. So <laughs> you go out and get your own audience. And so we would, uh, you know, basically pressure people for money and we'd sing our silly, you know, often dirty, stupid songs. But, you know, we were energetic and busking took us around the world. And it was, it was Canberra that where you uh, all met, was it not? Yeah, we can't all be perfect, and Canberra is one of those dirty secrets of all of our pasts. But, uh, yeah, yeah, we met in Canberra after I'd been living in country New South Wales, and uh, Richard, I think, was from Adelaide, but Paul was the only one who'd been in Canberra his entire life, and doesn't it show? Yeah, it does. Um, And I know, with his perfect syntax and all that. (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, Canberra is a good start. Paul, Paul actually had a song uh, in on uh, his last album or last release, whenever uh, he had a song um, uh, about COVID and how the streets were empty, and he and the song was along the lines of uh, every city in the world's like Canberra in the seventies on a Sunday. <laughs> right? Was, yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> great lyric. Yeah, great lyric. You could have fired a cannon. Exactly. Um, now, the, so before getting into busking, at what point was it in young Tim Ferguson's life that he realised he had a, a flair for comedy and performing? Oh, it was only really when we were busking that uh, the great thing about being a comedian is no one can tell you what to do or say. Mm. It's not like being an actor where you've got to read scripts by, you know, someone who died 500 years ago. Yes. Um, you can, you know, if you want to talk about something, you just go on stage and you start talking about it. Although that's uh, well, a wonderfully free business. Well, in this day and age, though, there's uh, always the risk of being cancelled. Uh, the Doug Anthony All Stars should have been cancelled many times over, but that's why I loved them. Well, yeah, I mean, people often say, "Oh, if the All Stars were around today, you wouldn't be able to do it." And I just say, "Well, we are around today." And you should have seen the last show we did. It was appalling, Simon. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to do that outside of the house. No, well, I it's love. It's all about. It's all about the points that you're trying to make. If you know, you can talk about any topic. It's just what point are you making? Mm. Um, but uh, it's uh, you know, uh, I think with social media, it's easier for people to try and cancel you, but. You know, if you just keep going, they give up. There's only so many times an audience can say, stop, stop, <laughs> if another audience is moving in and enjoying themselves. Yeah. Are there um, comedians you admire today in the, the current crop? Yeah, I think uh, uh, there are a couple of young ones. There's um, Annabelle James, who's only been on the scene for a couple of years and hasn't actually played the Melbourne Comedy Festival yet, but she's going really well in Sydney. She's really sharp. One of those people who uh, I produce nights at the Harold Park Hotel in Sydney at the moment. And as soon as she walked on, I thought, well, that's going to be, you know, 20 years of Annabelle will be running the world. So she's one to have a look at. Um, And, uh, also, I think obviously the the UK people are consistently turning out some great comedians. Al Murray is one, and 
Ricky Gervais, of course, is always an exciting live show prospect. He should be cancelled, and he would he would agree with me. Yes, I should be cancelled, but in the meantime, here's my latest show. <laughs> the um, uh, I've heard the expression, and I would apply it to both Ricky Gervais and uh, you guys as the Doug Anthony All Stars, uh, where uh, the, the expression being th- three percenters where 97% of the world might not sort of appreciate the humour that you, you do because it is edgy and, and cheeky, uh, but 3% of the world will be your undying fans for your entire lives and you can do no wrong. And, and, and that's generally enough to get a career happening. Yes, yeah, certainly worldwide, or if you were in America... Um, 3% of America's, you know, ends up being a lot of people. Mm. So, yeah, that's very true. It's, uh, it's, it's just important to, you know, be, to be thoughtful and think things through for when, say, one of your colleagues, Simon, calls up and says, wait a second, you can't say that on stage. Come on my show and explain yourself. Um, that way you can go on and say, okay, it sounds bad, but this is my point. And you can see, if you look at the words I was saying, this is the point I was making. It's the intent. Um, as I teach uh, the people when I teach comedy, it's like, don't worry about the impact because the impact of your material will always be different. No matter who's um, watching, uh, everybody will always take something different but just be sure what your intention is with your material and then you can't go wrong. Mm. That's that's very good. I, I do like that a lot. And you, you do teach comedy as well, which I have a, a great appreciation for because – uh, most of us sit back and uh, we choose our own things that we like and uh, and you, you just appreciate the comedy that, that uh, you happen to enjoy. But there's there's so much structure uh, that can be uh, put in place for comedy and I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, the, the way you structure a show or the way you structure a joke, you've got to put the punchline at the end, um, is uh, they are skills that you can learn. And once you learn those basic sort of principles, they can really speed up your writing process. It doesn't make it any easier, but at least you've got a better idea of, you know, what's going to work mm. and, and what isn't. So that, you know, takes some of the stress away. Some people get very scared before they do stand up. Like they they have to go off in the corner and spew in a bucket and they're walking up and down. I've worked with them. It's like really just, you know, I've never understood it. But um, the more what you're doing is based upon principles that have worked since Aristophanes in ancient Greece, then the more reliably you're going to get laughs. And is there a um, – there's no sort of secret recipe, I, I, I guess, because if there was, everyone would be a comedian. But uh, one thing I always admired and I noticed in Bert Newton as a, uh, as a compare and just a, a generally you know, funny guy, he will – in any situation, he's very good at – or he was very good at um, – you know, he'll come up with something funny and then five minutes down the track when you've changed conversation and you're on a different tack and you're, you're talking about a different topic – he'll refer back 
to the previous funny thing and tie it in with what he's currently talking about. And that every time strikes me as a stroke of brilliance and and it always gets a very big laugh. When you can reflect back to something that was funny five minutes ago uh, in the different context you're in, that's if, if I could write comedy, that's what I'd be trying to do at every opportunity. Yeah, they call that the callback and Bert Newton was the master of that. And always great if you were doing an interview on Good Morning Australia, you know, you'd make a joke at the beginning and the, a callback to that would be the way he'd end the interview. It was just somehow while he's talking and listening, his brain would be running like a hamster on a wheel mm. trying to, you know, put it all together. He was a master of a master of that. Now, um, so Tim Ferguson's comedy career envelops everything. You've, you're not uh, just a, a stand-up comic, but you, you've, you've hosted television shows, radio shows, you've written films, you've written TV series, you've written books, uh, you teach comedy, jack-of-all-trades. I, I, I sort of hate that expression because it implies jack-of-all-trades, master of none. But you have mastered so many different forms of, uh, of, of pre- presentation and comedy and, and all of those things sort of rolled into one. Is there a particular favourite or how do you drift from one to the other and get it right? Well, there's nothing – I mean, you're very, you're very nice to say that, but the main thing really is that you always operate from the same base. So even though it looks like you're making a TV show now and then you're doing a live show or – even an art exhibition like I did with Paul Livingston only a couple of months ago, it's all coming from the same centre. So to uh, to the outside, it looks like, oh, my God, you're doing 10 different things. But they're all, when you're in comedy, they're all coming at the audience um, in different ways, but it's always the same thing. For me, it's always been you want to turn the tables over. Mm. You want to change people's thinking or at least change the direction of their day. And to do that, probably the most effective is the stand-up, going back where it all began with, you know, you, the crowd, and the only thing you've got to defend yourself is the microphone. <laughs> and I do, I do love that. It's, uh, people are right to be scared of it, but um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the one that's the most fun. And, yeah, it's immediate. If it's going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong right now. (laughs) um, I'm taken back now to one of the video cassettes of a a live Doug Anthony All-Stars show, and there was a moment where, for the first time ever, the three of you sort of looked uh, dumbstruck and and, uh, and not in control, as it were, when uh, two <laughs> women uh, leapt up on stage, whipped their clothes off and leapt, leapt up on the stage and, and ran around hugging you both and then just, uh, the three of you, and then took off down <laughs> the other side of the stage. And it was, it was a priceless comic moment. And Paul looked genuinely lost and just had no, how do we recover from this? Where do we go? Uh, and uh, you, you, I think yourself was uh, you were you sort of had the finger in the mouth in that sort of shock horror, you know, biting the knuckle uh, expression, and and I, I think uh, I, I think um, Richard had lost it as well. But it was it was a, just a great comic moment. Can I tell you a secret? Don't tell anybody, Simon. 
No, don't tell me it was uh, set up. They were both members of our touring team. No. Yeah, yeah, they were, um, yeah, one was from the UK, one was Australian, and they just did it as a prank. Um, and so uh, so we knew them, we just weren't expecting them to uh, be so naked. But there you go, you know. And then after that was like, well, I can't talk to you anymore because now I've seen you naked. We can't work together. Oh. I'm going to go to mass and discuss this with my priest. Oh, did they? Did they do? Did they do that just because they knew it was being recorded, or? or... Oh, they were always doing just you know stupid stuff. Oh, um, that is fabulous. when you're a touring band, people get bored, and they <laughs> you know you get bored, and then the next thing you know, the water sprinklers come on, or you know someone runs around naked, or yeah, again yeah, nude. <laughs> Nude interruptions were quite common, and they were usually people we knew. Sometimes you'd get lucky, and strangers would do it. But yeah, for most of them, it was like, "Oh my God, Claire, what are you doing?" <laughs> oh, that is fabulous. Um, well, and they were very beautiful. That was the other thing. I had a rule: like, if anybody's going to do that, they have to be good looking. <laughs> Otherwise, they're out. <laughs> I'm not inflicting that upon my audience. Oh, magnificent. Uh, now, in, in all of those things that you have done, from like, you hosted radio on 3AK in Melbourne. Uh, uh, you, you don't forget your toothbrush, the TV, that, which was a fantastic TV series. I don't know why that didn't get uh, a longer run. What happened there? Well, it cost uh, about 400 grand an episode. Mm. And I think eventually, or fairly quickly, I think Mr. Packer said, okay, I'm not doing this for a hobby. So it was great fun, but you could tell from watching the show, it was gigantic, 400 people in the studio audience, all of them with passports ready to travel overseas immediately. We had a, a crew on some nights of 70 people around Australia uh, with cameras and outside broadcast bands, um, usually just to blow something up, you know, with steal people's cars. I'd offer them five grand to blow up their, you know, 1975 Datsun, and they'd say yes, and we'd blow it up. Um, Yeah, yeah, it was just very expensive. It was the last of the big spending entertainment TV shows, but lots of fun. And it was it was brilliant. I, I remember one where you were dang, you you, you uh, pulled a lady out of the audience, and it was a car related one, and her car was suspended from a crane, and <laughs> you know, high up oh, in the right, air. Oh right, yeah. And uh, and yeah, the, that exact same thing happened. You you offered her. I think you either offered her a replacement car or yeah, a cash amount if they if you would uh, if she would allow you to drop the the uh, car from that crane. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and the, we'd always make sure that their cars were garbage, so that they would probably say yes. Mm. You know, just for the risk, I'll, I'll give you five grand for a car that's not even worth two hundred bucks. Yeah, so you know, it was great fun. That's real entertainment with oh, absolutely nothing to learn. Nobody yeah. at the end of the show says, <laughs> "So, kids." Did you learn anything? Yes. There was nothing to learn. Yes. What What can we take away from that show? Nothing. It was just yeah, fun. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Zero. Now you you also wrote a uh, TV series based on radio, which I've forgotten the name of it for the moment. The um, oh, shock jock, shock jock. Yes. 
which which I loved. Working in the industry, of course, it's uh, it, it was much. It was it was in, it's something I insisted on watching. I and I loved every episode. How did that come about? Oh, I was talking to Mark Gracie one day, and I uh, Mark Gracie's a great Melbourne producer. He's made so many comedy movies, Take Away, and You and Your Stupid Mate, and. Uh, going way back to the 90s. He's made all these feature films. And I was talking to him and I said, I've got this idea about radio. Uh, I think, you know, because I'd been working a bit in radio and I said that they're just not like other people. Those, the big rock shock jocks aren't like other people. They've got skins as thick as a Mally, Mally Bull what do you think about a series? And it was Mark Gracie who said, well, yeah, it needs something else. What about you make it in the 80s? Mm. And once we had that idea, then it all started to come together. So through the series, you hear news stories from the 80s, um, are the things that are playing while all of the shock jocks are trying to tear each other to pieces. Yeah, It was, uh, it was the first series that Foxtel had made that was a narrative a narrative series. We did it with the UK Paramount Comedy Channel. So it was just a perfect storm of um, two audiences at once and uh, became irresistible. But, you know, fun, such fun you can have um, poking at an industry like you know, being those shock jock early yes. morning. I mean, 3AW, Neil Mitchell wasn't never really a shock jock. You, but if you go up to Sydney and you have uh, people who like Alan Jones yes. who live on shock and live on um, stirring people up, there is comedy to be found as soon as they open their mouths. Yes, John Laws, Ray Hadley, they, they were... Of course, they were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Laws and Hadley. And Sydney's it, the home of the shock jock. Melbourne, yeah. you know, is, Melbourne people are just more sensible. <laughs> Although we did have Darren Hinch, and uh, and I, I don't sort of. Oh yeah, I, I, I don't. That's I, right. I don't label him as a shock jock as such, but uh, but he was he's the closest we came to uh, to the. Well, he is the the human headline and remains to this day. So there's yeah, there's an element of great, it there. A great stirrer. That was the thing, you know. Darren would just you know, stir the pot, Yes, get people's blood boiling. And, uh, of course, people would take him seriously, whereas, you know, really you can't be that outrageous all the time. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, now, Tim, we um, we should get on to some of the favourites, given that's the, the purpose of this whole thing. So what I have here is a list of 50 things, and we won't do all 50, I just pick some at random. Uh, I, I close my eyes, point at the page, and then uh, just ask you your favourite of these particular things. What are the odds? I've just uh, I've just pointed at my piece of paper, number thirty three, and it's actually just come up favourite comedian. Now people are going to think that's planned, but that was absolutely random. Tim Ferguson, your favourite comedian? I'd have to say Jim Owen. Oh yes, he's. I've seen Jamon live so many times, and every time he's just got new material. He's got that wonderful cheeky Irish smile. He's uh, he's just reliably funny, and you can take anybody to go see Jamon. There's no 
there's no age restriction, and yet somehow he talks about things that make you think, even though he's just being silly. So I'd have to say Jamal. That's a that's a ripper answer, uh, and I, I was given many years ago a video cassette, a preview video cassette of a Jim Owen release, and I took it home uh, after work one night, and I hopped into bed, and my wife was asleep beside me, and I put the video on, and I had my headphones on so I wouldn't wake her, but Uh-oh. I was giggling so much that the bed was shaking, and I was disturbing my wife. And I'm, I'm usually one who appreciates comedy. I, I'm not one to laugh out loud as such. I sit there and go, oh, that's clever. Mm, oh, that's very funny. But I was giggling like a, a, a school kid who, you know, somebody beside them had passed wind. And he, he is a, a very funny man. The, the thing that really got me in that uh, particular session, that, that routine that he was doing, he, he told a joke or two that fell a little flat and then he pointed out that it was probably because he was standing in the wrong place because the funny part of the stage is just over there. And he, he just All right. And, and then he sort of just, you know, he sort of inched toward the other part of the stage. And as he got closer, the audience started giggling, which right. made it a self-fulfilling thing. And by the time he got to the funny part of the stage that he had pointed at, the audience were in hysterics. And all he had done is walk across the stage. And I thought that was just brilliant, brilliant, uh, you know, clever idea. Yeah, very clever guy. And, of course, you know, it all comes out. It all seems so easy. It's like, oh, I'm sure i have just made it up on the way to the gig. But I think, you know, Jim Owen would work for weeks and weeks on the material and then try it out and fix it up. And he's uh, uh, most recently been in New York and the U.K., is now an international concern, Jamoan. So he's, I think Melbourne can claim him as our own. Yep. Um, uh, he's an international success. Absolutely. Worth definitely getting a hold of next time just to say, what have you been doing in New York, you strange little Irish man? <laughs> um, uh, Tim Ferguson, favourite snack? Oh, uh, in fact, I think it's those Sakata biscuits. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could eat them all day. I know they've probably got a bit of sodium in them, but the the seaweed biscuits. Seaweed is, yeah, there's a a seaweed one. I also love there's a caramelised onion and balsamic vinegar one, which really does the trick for me. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Geez, we're getting classy in our old age, Simon. <laughs> exactly. We uh, forget forget going to fancy restaurants. A pack of Sakatar biscuits will do the trick every time. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Favorite band? Oh, Midnight Oil. I yeah. mean, I know I should be saying ACDC, but you know, Midnight Oil just for just sheer originality of their music. Um. <laughs> need to be mentioned of course they're communists or i don't know they carry on about whatever it is u.s forces give the not but at the end of the day it's just awesome awesome music well I'm, and, I'm, uh, i was going to ask you um peter garrett of course entered politics as as did you running for the seat of kuyong <laughs> some time ago uh, that's did- right yeah yeah i mean he got in Whereas I shouldn't have been doing it for a joke. If I hadn't done it for a joke, who knows where I'd be. Thank God I didn't get in. 
Uh, no, I, I think you would have been a, a wonderful member of parliament, would you not? Would you have oh, loathed it have or been. loved it? My best work would have been done outside at the front doors when you get, you know, stopped by the media. That would be my funniest material. Exactly. The rest of the time you'd just be sitting there waiting for everything to stop. Yeah, and have an endless parade of people coming into your office to complain about potholes in roads and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but smarty pants things to say to the media first thing in the morning. I'm your man. Yeah, whack out a press release full of, full of great comic content. Did you and Peter yeah, Garrett yeah. Ever, ever? Did you and Peter Garrett ever meet and sit around and chat pol- politics? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, in fact, we caught up in WA. Oh, I don't know, five years ago uh, at uh, the hotel cafe. Our manager knew their manager and. And so, yeah, we managed to have a, a sit-down coffee with Mr. Garrett, Mr. Magini, and it was, um, yeah, it was awesome fun. I'm sitting there, you know, trying to say cool things to one of my teenage heroes. He's, uh, yep. oh, gee, your oh pa- my God. Your partner's got a bad cough. <laughs> <laughs> The dog is actually gigantic. <laughs> it's just—it's got a throat it infection. <laughs> oh. Peter Abbott, the producer of Big Brother and Dancing with the Stars, and I'm a celebrity. Shoot me in the foot is uh, has just arrived. But um, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, it was great, it, and they say don't meet your heroes, but Peter Garrett was exactly like I thought he would be, very well-considered and thoughtful and, of course, very political. Why not? Yes, exactly. No, that's good to hear. That's good. Uh, favourite movie? Ah, uh, favourite movie. I think Terminator 2. Terminator 2. I mean, I, I think the first Terminator where Arnold's running around Shooting people is like great fun, but Terminator Two is where James Cameron really hit his stride. Mm. Yep, no, it, it, it is good. Yeah, uh, there's not a lot of dialogue, not a lot of dialogue, not a, not a lot to think about. But uh, yeah, great fun. Yeah, I'll be back. Uh, favorite current TV show? Ah, oh, right now it's just stopped, but Veep. Uh, oh, yes. Is a great show with Julia Louis Draceford from Stanford. <laughs> uh, I'll ask you one more and then I'll let you go and deal with the, uh, the barking dog. Oh, yes. Favourite holiday destination? Oh, uh, uh, I'd have to say. Oh, that's a tough one. I'd have to say Kuala Lumpur. <laughs> It's, uh, it's got a great uh, combination of the Malaysian culture, which means you're going to be having the best food ever. But also, it's got tremendous history that part of that part of Asia. Uh, the people are wonderful. Yeah, Kuala Lumpur. Um, if you haven't been there, um, definitely worth checking out. It's got so much going on culturally and musically, and um, really. Really great place to go. 
Lovely. Uh, it's been lovely to catch up with you, Tim. Timothy Dawson Langbean Ferguson. Uh, <laughs> the, the, what, as I say, one of the, the greatest names I've ever heard in my life. Um, it is. It's a great name. Now, great name, Australia. Now, I, I won't ask what you're up to now, but suffice to say you're, you're still uh, still working on projects and uh, and you know, living, living a great life, yes? Well, yeah, Australia's most exciting producer is here shout hello peter hello there you go see he's here so collaboration is happening and i should let you get to it it never stops thanks so much simon and merry christmas to you and everyone oh it's a pleasure good on you tim that's tim ferguson